Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You see it all over the place. You, you see it on bumper stickers, tattoos, perhaps most memorably a guy streaking across a football field carrying a sign with it. I'm talking about John 3.16. <laughs> it's the Bible verse that has often been called the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right there, you have this story of the gospel put in a simple, succinct, and powerful way. And so it makes sense that people would be placing it all over and, and to, to put it up and to put it as this simple message of the good news. And yet I do wonder how often we ourselves really ponder all that this little verse is saying. How it unpacks the profundities of the gospel in such a small, pithy way. And what I want to do this morning is to crack open that nutshell, so to speak. To look more deeply at this verse in particular so that we might know it better, but also so that we might be able to share it with others. So that we would be able to use John 3.16 in a way that we're able to, to witness and to evangelize those who don't know the good news. And what I want to show you is how what you have here in just a sentence is really the story of the gospel uh, compressed into just one simple statement, how it really tells the story. And stories generally, just putting this in as broad a terms as possible, have a problem, a solution, and a result. That's the basic structure of a story. You've got a problem, a solution, and a result. And I want to show you how John 3.16 lays out the story of the gospel for us in just this way, so that we might know it better. And so we might be more confident to share it with others. So first of all, when we get to John 3.16, we're thinking about the problem. That's the place that we start with, the, with telling this story. The problem really needs to be teased out from John 3.16. It's, it's stated more implicitly than explicitly. But if I can put it simply, it's just this. The world is perishing. The world is perishing. People are dying. That this world and the creatures that God has made continue to pass away. And that this is not how God originally intended it to be. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. Why are we starting with death, with people perishing? Many times when we tell a story, we start with sin. And we talk about how man is separated from God because of their sin. So why start with perishing? Well, let me give you three reasons. The first, the most straightforward, is that this is how John does it here in John 3.16 and how our Lord Jesus does it. There's many ways to tell the story, but when you're telling it from John 3.16, this is the most natural place to start because this is how the evangelist and how the Lord himself starts it, with the fact of death and perishing. But then secondly, I get this from uh, the apologist G.K. Chesterton. He says, you know, uh, if it is true, as it undoubtedly is, that people can find exquisite delight in skinning a cat, <laughs> then uh, that could tell us one of two things. First, Chesterton says, uh, atheists would say, this means there is no God, because how could anyone find delight in skinning a cat? But on the flip side, this is where Christians would say, no, this proves an original sin. Because how could anyone skin the cat? This is, this is just a, a testimony to the fact that we are separated from God. But Chesterton says, and he's writing a hundred years ago, he says, in our own day, people think that it's very enlightened 
just to deny the cat itself. In other words, to pretend that there isn't any problem at all. The atheist at least grants, yes, there's a problem. That proves there is no God. The Christian says, yes, there's a problem. This proves an original sin. But nowadays, nowadays, and if that was true for Chesterton, how much more for us today, people say, no, 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 no. Sin? Oh, that's such an antiquated, old-fashioned sort of... You still believe in that? Oh, wow, okay. So, I bring that up to say, I think that it can be a more effective way simply to start with the fact of death and perishing. People might try to explain away sin, they can't explain away the grave. And furthermore, it's the third reason why to start there. When you get there, then you can work backward from the fact of sin, where we have a, a, an account for why it is that people are dying. Again, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. We often say death is just a part of life. Be that as it may, in this age, it's not how God originally intended it to be. It's not how it will be at the last. And so we can still work backwards from death to talk about sin, and in particular, to bring the full potency to this problem of perishing. See, because when our Lord talks about perishing, he doesn't merely mean the simple fact of physical life going away, as, as devastating as that is. But he's also talking about the spiritual death, that eternal separation from God, the source of our life and being, for you and me, for anyone in this world to perish means not merely that you die, but that you are isolated eternally from the very source of life. And I think in this past year, we've been given a picture, an analogy of what this really feels like. And I, I mentioned this with trepidation because I know for some of us, this is still all too real. But as you've talked with people, as you've read stories about how COVID has been so devastating, one of the things that comes up again and again and again is the fact that people are in the hospital not able to be with the family. And I know that some of you have experienced this in a very painful way, and you can testify how horrible that is, that separation and that isolation. Friends, if that is awful, and it undoubtedly is, imagine that eternally. And not merely from friends and family, but from the very source of life and being, from God himself. When we talk about perishing, that's what we're talking about. And so that's where we start with this problem, the John 3.16 diagnosis. It's the problem of perishing, manifest already in physical death, but it goes even deeper than that. But that leads us then to the solution. And this is the heart of John 3.16. It's the heart of God. See, apart from any kind of outside divine intervention, that perishing is the, the uh, consequence for every single human being. But God in love has not allowed it to stay that way. It flows from his fatherly heart. Why does God act? Because he is consumed with compassion for the creatures that he has made. It's what the, the Christian musician calls the reckless, raging fury that we call the love of God. Everything flows from that. Everything stems from that. That This is not just some gauzy sentiment either, but this is costly sacrifice for God. 
that he so deeply cares about every single human being, for God so loved the world, not merely the elect, not merely the nice people, not people of this tribe or nation or race, but the entire world, so all-wide and embracing, so boundless is the love of God that he gathers all into his fatherly heart. But notice this too. It's not simply that God is love, as true as that is, but that God's love is known, is realized in this action. See, John 3.16 might be better translated as God loved the world in this way. In this way that he gave his only son. The love of God is made manifest in this costly sacrificial offering. And God doesn't have to have his arm twisted. He does it freely, beneficently, for the sake of you and me and all the world. But at this point, and especially when we're thinking about sharing John 3.16 or using this story as a basis to, to share the gospel with others, at this point, an objection could be raised, has been raised. And from some people, it's from a place of skepticism. From other people, uh, for other people, it's a place of, of earnest questioning. I myself was asked this at what I thought was about the worst possible time. So it's my last year at seminary, and at the end of your seminary education, at least it used to be this way, I'm not sure that it still is, you would have what was known as the CI, the certification interview. And at the certification interview, this is where a couple of SEMPROFs get to grill you and ask you whatever they want to ask you to see if you are fit to be ordained and, and to serve God's church. Now, we were told, we were, we were reassured, don't worry about it. It's not going to be that big of a deal. And in fact, for me, the two guys that I got were one of my favorite mentors, professor, and the other one, this super friendly, nice guy by the name of Thomas Egger, who just became the new president of Concordia Seminary. These are the two guys that I have who are going to ask me just in a, a friendly conversation. So they sit me down, and we have a little bit of small talk. And then straight away, Professor Egger, now Dr. Egger, now President Egger, <clears throat> looks at me and he says, all right, so you Christians say that God gave his son for your redemption. Are you telling me that your good news is really a story of cosmic child abuse? And I was like, okay, this isn't just a fun conversation, is it? People do object in this way. They ask this question. Again, from a place of earnestness or from a place of skepticism, wherever it comes from, I think it's a fair question. Wait a second. You're saying this father sacrifices his son for other people? How does that work? It's a fair objection, I say. But I think it stems from a misunderstanding about the nature of God himself. See, in the gospel, you don't have the father saying to a, a grudging son, all right, son, somebody's got to go and you're as good as any other. Get down there. And Jesus is like, oh, come on, please. There's got to be somebody else. Can't you send an angel? Instead, what we have in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a communion of love. And within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a conspiracy of compassion for the sake of the world. See, the world falls into sin, death enters in, and the Father sees his creation, his good world, going the way of eternal death. 
He cannot, will not have it be that way. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The Father says from before the foundation of the world. And the Son willingly, voluntarily, voluntarily, lovingly raises his hand and says, Here I am, Father. Send me for the sake of you and me. And out of that love that knows no bounds, the Father sent his Son. The Son goes uncomplainingly, lovingly forth, and the Spirit empowers that love for the sake of the world. If we look at this story of the gospel and see it simply as an angry father punishing his son so that the rest of us can get let off, so that he can turn a blind eye to sin, we misunderstand the very nature of the gospel and indeed the character of God himself. It is a conspiracy of compassion, a holy huddle of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, acting for the sake of this perishing world, acting for your salvation and mine. As we tell the story of the gospel from John 3.16, it's embedded right there in that nutshell. Look, the world is perishing, but because of that, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that brings us to the third part of the story, the result. Why did he do it? Every good story has stakes. What's at stake with the story? You know, is Luke Skywalker gonna be able to blow up the Death Star or is the universe going to be destroyed? Are Princess Anna and Elsa able to rescue the kingdom or is Prince Hans going to become king of Arendelle? All the important stories have stakes, see. And so it is with the story of the gospel. It's the most eternal universal stakes possible. So we are told, here's what's at stake, so that all who believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. That's what God has in view for you and me and for all of his world that he loves, eternal life. And when we hear of eternal life, I don't want you just to hear of it in terms of quantity, a timelessness, like, Okay, cool, so we'll be in church forever. Oh, so excited about that. You need to understand that when the scriptures talk about eternal life, yes, there's that timelessness to it, but it's not just about quantity, it's about quality, see. It's what Jesus calls the life on abundance, life to the full. Or as it says in Psalm 16, it means the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. It's what uh, Paul talked about in Ephesians 2, where he will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Which to me, because I'm like a millennial kid, it makes me think of uh, back with the cartoon DuckTales, and you have the, the father, Scrooge McDuck, jumping into his giant cauldron of gold coins, swimming in all of his gold coins. I'm not saying that this is going to be part of heaven. But what I am saying is that when we think about the richness of eternal life, we ought to think of it in terms of a quality of the fullness of joy that you and I are going to be able to swim in, in which we will live, move, and have our being, which this world will be renewed and restored to how God originally intended it to be when he said at the beginning, it is good, so he will say at the end, it is very good indeed, and you and I and all who believe in Christ Jesus will enjoy this eternal life. But once more, as we share this story, some may ask or may object and say, but wait a second, wait a second. Okay, so if I believe in Jesus, I get this great thing. If I don't believe in him, though, I, I perish. It seems kind of arbitrary. 
Like, okay, believe in Jesus or else. Like, it could have been, you know, eat this ghost pepper or else. Like, it could have been any random thing, and God just sets it up, and it's like either you do it or you don't. But again, I think we need to reframe our understanding of what's going on here. It's as Paul said in Ephesians, we are dead already. Apart from the intervention of God, every single one of us are perishing. We're already snake-bitten, to go back to that Old Testament story. Every single one of us are already snake-bitten. Already we are, are incapacitated, laying down inside the burning house. And now Christ Jesus has burst through the door, our eternal fireman, in order to put out those flames to rescue you and me. And we say, yeah, but couldn't you have gone through the window instead of the door? To ask that question, perhaps it comes from an earnest place, but it's to misunderstand the nature of our plight. Look, Jesus says, apart from me, you stand condemned already. It's not merely a question of, well, if I believe in Jesus, I get this. If I don't, no, Jesus has come to rescue you. Believe in that promise. Trust in the one who has broken down those walls in order to make you his own eternally. This is the good news of John 3.16. This is the, the story that is compressed in this little sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Friends, that is a word to take to heart, to never grow tired of, of praising and praying to God back, thanksgiving for that. Well, we have been there 10,000 years. Still, we will speak these words. So let us do it in this life also. We have this gospel in a nutshell. Let's also crack it open. We have this treasure, even in jars of clay. Let's share it with others. We've been made privy to the heart of God. Let's open wide that heart for all the world to hear, to see, and believe. For that is the love of the Father for all. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.